how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 468, where I sat down with screenwriter and showrunner Lee Eisenberg. He's known for writing The Office, Bad Teacher, Hello Ladies, Good Boys, We Crashed, Little America, and two new shows, Jury Duty and Lessons in Chemistry. In this interview, we talk a little bit about everything, being small, real, and relatable, what it means to infuse your work with pesos, how we got started on The, on the Office, writing with and for Greg Daniels, Working with other heroes like Ivan Reitman, Harold Ramos, moving from writer to showrunner, how the show Jury Duty uh, is written with a treatment and improv actors, and of course the new show Lessons in Chemistry with Brie Larson, and so much more including how he broke into the industry and how he chooses writers to staff his writer's rooms. A lot of stuff to unpack here from a very prolific writer. This interview will also be available on the Creative Screenwriting website. If it's your first time here, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And very soon, I'll also be sharing my first book, Ink by the Barrel, in audiobook format right here on this podcast. We'll be sharing that in the next few weeks. All right, here's my talk with Lee Eisenberg. I, I moved out to L.A. in, uh, in 99, and uh, I moved out with my best friend from high school, and the summers of college... I graduated in 99, the summers of college, every summer we would write a screenplay. We were, we'd be waiters during the day, and then our days off and our weekends we would write. And primarily we were writing uh, comedies, or what we, what we were attempting to be comedies, I would say. They were, they, were, they were not fantastic scripts. And I just, I loved movies, I loved comedy in particular, and I, you know, I grew up on the Ivan Reitman, Harold Ramis, John Hughes uh, movies of the 80s, and and nothing seemed cooler to me than, than trying to uh, have that as my career. And uh, moved out, and then we started, uh, we started kind of working separately. Shortly thereafter, he got a proper day job, and I, uh, I would write and temp as much as I could. And uh, I got hired on a movie called Bedazzled, and I was, the, I was the office PA, and I met an intern who was working for Harold Ramis at the time named Gene Simnitsky, and Gene and I really just connected. We had all the same taste. And also, he was working for Harold, who was one of my heroes. And Gene and I started writing together and really focused on comedy. And over the course of years, we, you know, we, we sold a few ideas to Larry David for Curb Your Enthusiasm. And, uh, and then we, wrote a, we came up with an idea for a pilot that was about two uh, loser magicians who were uh, roommates and trying to get ahead as magicians. Uh, we call them Lonnie and Gordo. Lee and Gene were Lonnie and Gordo. Magic replaced writing. And we basically just, uh, we were the two losers that were, <laughs> that were roommates at the time. And we, we sold it. We sold it to Fox. Uh, and then that, Fox never made it, but that became our kind of our writing sample that got us hired on The Office. And then uh, in a strange turn of events, Harold read it and, uh, and hired us to co-write a movie called Year One uh, with him. So... After five years of being an assistant and, and you know, really trying to uh, claw our way, you know, to a, a writing career, 
we got hired on the office, and then a few months after that, we we started working on year one with Harold. Besides, you know, effort in, um, and did anything change? Like, it sounds like I don't know. I'm guessing maybe did you move towards more behavior based comic like uh, characters that that type of thing? Did your comedy start to change at all? You know, I think that we when we were first starting off, it was um, kind of jokes ruled, and I think that that initial pilot. Uh, I'm very proud of it, and it, you know, it got us it got us a bunch of work and really jumpstarted our career. It has no uh, it has no pathos. It's really you know those two characters. I mean, they they could be animated characters to a certain extent. They have a lot of similarities to like Flight of the Concords or maybe Arrested Development, uh, and less so The Office. And you know, when we first started working on The Office, you know, I I love and Gene loves you know things that you know we gravitate towards are you know small, real, relatable which was, you know, sometimes the office would get broader, but that was really the stuff that we loved. And how do you mm -hmm. tell a story that feels as small as possible and it, as, you know, as kind of observational as possible. So that was, that was what we always, uh, that's what we were always excited about. And then, you know, the other thing with the office that, you know, started changing our, our, our not our view, but just kind of the way our approach was writing, uh, you know, the Jim and Pam relationship. And that sometimes there was, you know, there were great jokes that came with that, but a lot of it was really, we we're trying to tell a great love story and we we're try trying to tell a very honest love story. And I remember we wrote, our first episode was called The Fight and it was uh, Michael and Dwight go to a karate dojo and, and, and fight, which is pretty broad. And, uh, but, but there was a, you know, this very sweet moment between Jim and Pam where they, they kind of connect and then he kind of, he pushes it and he flirts with her. It's, it goes a little too far and it's this kind of uncomfortable ending with them. Um, but I remember Greg Daniels saying, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to say everything that you mean. There's something called subtext. And it was really, I knew what subtext was because I was an English major in college, but I had never really written anything that was meant to be honest and that the characters were, you know, that it was, it was something I could pull from my own life rather than, you know, uh, maybe, you know, an office situation that I had from my temp, my temp jobs. And that was a really, it was very instructive. And I remember that moment. I know exactly where I was with Greg. And that, you know, those five years on The Office were really like grad school. And I think that we evolved so much as joke writers and, and, and an ability to structure uh, a half hour. But also, I think we were excited about the idea of kind of infusing our work with, with more pathos. And then, you know, we continued on this path of, you know, comedy and did year one and we did Bad Teacher. We, we developed Ghostbusters 3 for years and years with Ivan Reitman. So we were, uh, we were able to... We, were, we got the opportunity to work with another one of our heroes uh, on, you know, what would have been, I mean, the Ghostbusters franchise was so, you know, was, was our childhood. And so the opportunity to have lunch with, uh, with Dan Aykroyd and sit with Harold and Ivan and exchange stories. I mean, it was, I mean, it was an amazing time. When you're meeting with like um, Ivan and Harold Ramos, did anything change about the logistics of your writing or did you feel confident enough in your own like style and some of those things that you were just trying to kind of match the voice. Like, how do you think about some of those things? I think with anything and, and, you know, when I read writers, you know, if I'm hiring writers for my staff, I'm looking for original voices. I'm not looking, I'm not looking for someone who immediately can ape my material. And I don't, you know, when we were coming up, everyone wrote spec scripts and it was a spec script would be like, Oh, this is my office episode. This is my scrubs episode. I wrote an episode of the Sopranos. And those became the writing samples. And it was to kind of almost judge your ability to kind of speak in someone else's voice. And I think my favorite writers are the ones that have the ability to, you know, really have an originality to their voice. And 
there's a, a specificity and a, uh, a point of view that is something that I don't have. I, I have a point of view, I believe, but I'm saying that hopefully they have a different one. And so if we're able to meld our different sensibilities, like I think that's where greatness will arrive from. So, you know, it was very instructive with Ivan and Harold who have very, who had uh, both of them passed, both had uh, very different approaches to producing and rewriting and, and, and all of that. And, you know, what, with Ivan, you'd write 30 pages and then he would give you notes and then he'd want you to rewrite the 30 pages and maybe you'd advance to page 35 and then he'd read 35 pages and you'd go back to zero and then you'd get to 38 and then the next time you'd get to 49. And, that, and so you were constantly going back to the beginning and every line was being stress test as you were going. It was very tiring and we ended up doing, you know, one rewrite would really be, you know, eight rewrites. And that was, that was Ivan's way of kind of for himself to kind of get back into the material and also to constantly be, you know, uh, stress testing it. And with Harold, mm -hmm. Harold always approached everything from theme. And so it was like, what's the bigger idea here? What are we, not just from a plot standpoint, but what, you know, what is the story that we're trying to tell if we're 10,000 feet up? And that was, that was incredibly helpful. And then Harold was, you know, above all else, I mean, he's, you know, one of the greatest joke writers of all time. And so we would talk to him about like, you know, the scene play of a scene and how do you, that was an Ivan term, but how do you find kind of, how do you kind of milk all of the comedy out of every single uh, moment? To go back for a second, I think you said your, your first writing partner ended up taking like a different career path, basically. Yeah. What, what kept you going back then before all the, the notices and getting to work with heroes and everything else? Like, was it just something intangible or anything that you could pass along to other people in that position? Uh, you know, I think uh, it was a host of things. I think there was fear. I think that the prospect of moving back to Boston where I, where I grew up um, was, it felt like a little bit of failure and I had a fear. I, I, I felt like I was failing in LA, but if I moved back to Boston, then that would have been the admission of failure. And I think I didn't come from, you know, if you went to Harvard and you were on the Lampoon, you, you kind of come into a feeder system where there's, you move out to LA and your roommates are other Lampoon people. And then someone's like, oh, I'll put you up for a job on this show or that show. And you, you, you have access to people. And I, you know, I had a handful of index cards with like the most tenuous relationships that a person could ever have with another human. And that's all I really had to myself. And so, you know, I thought I had some ability and I, what I kind of realized early on was whatever the Delta was between my ability and let's say Aaron Sorkin or whoever was kind of the top screenwriter at the time, I would just outwork everyone else. And I, I couldn't control my talent. And I thought maybe through hard work, uh, my talent would increase, but I, I knew that I could, I knew that I had the ability to outwork everyone. And so that's just what I did. And so I was a temp at HBO and everyone would go home around six or seven and you know go out to drinks or go home to their husbands or wives or, or whatever. And I had no one in my life at the time. I didn't have a lot of friends in LA and I really wanted this as a career. And so I would stay at the office till nine or 10 at night. And I, it would, you know, this beautiful office and it would be completely quiet. And I would just sit there for two or three hours and I would work on my, I'd work on my scripts and I was just really diligent about it. And there was no, there's no real path to becoming a writer. I mean, there are, you know, there, there are a few steps here and there, but if you talk to 10 writers, each, every one of them will give you a different way that they, they kind of broke through. And I just felt like if I could keep working my material, eventually someone would, would kind of see the potential in it. And, and that would be the, that would be my opening. 
Was there ever like a ultimatum you gave yourself or was it just like, I'm going to cut the safety net. I'm just going to keep going. And I mean, there's something, there's something about just not quitting, I think, but I'm just curious more about that mindset. I didn't really have the problem was that maybe the problem or, or the, or the advantage that I had was I didn't really have a, there wasn't really a plan B. I, uh, I got hired. The first job I ever got hired for was to be a, uh, to, to write a freelance episode of a show called JAG, which was a military courtroom drama. And I quit my day job um, and started going to the, you know, the writer's room of JAG. And I wrote, I wrote my outline and I got noted to death on my outline. And then I worked with one of the other writers and I, I continued working on it. And it was just, it was feeling really bad. Like I didn't, there was no the organization of that show was very different from anything I had, I had seen up until that point. And I really felt like I was in over my head and I kept telling everyone I'm going to get fired. And everyone's like, well, everyone thinks that everyone thinks they're a fraud. And I was like, I think they're going to fire me. And I got fired. And so the first, the first job that I ever, like when I got my first foot in the door and I was actually going to start working as a professional writer, I was fired within a few months. And that was, I mean, utter devastation, you know, a, everyone who had assumed that I wasn't going to make it as a writer was now validated. And I remember having to call my dad and I broke down in tears. It was really, it was brutal. And, you know, when you, when you get so close to your dream and then it doesn't, it doesn't work out, um, that was horrible. And so part of me felt a little bit like maybe I'll go to culinary school. I always love to cook. And I, I thought that might be a path for me, but I didn't, I, I didn't want to go back to Boston. Um, and I, and I wasn't ready to quit yet. And then I think, Within about six months of that, I think Gene and I sold some ideas to Larry for Curb. And that at least was, it wasn't a lot of money, but having someone of Larry's uh, caliber actually reading my material and responding to it in the way that he did was validation that, you know, maybe there was a career there for me. At one point, kind of in your career, I mean, you're, it sounds like you're maybe writing some spec script comedies, but when did you start to feel like a certain confidence in your voice? Like in addition to, you know, writing for other projects that were on air or they were about to be on air, like when did you kind of move from writer to maybe showrunner or creator, like, like mentally, I guess. I don't know, a few days ago. No, I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I worked on the office for five years. And by the time we left the office, we were co-executive producers and largely running the writer's room. We weren't, we weren't show running it. Uh, and, and I didn't even quite understand exactly what a showrunner did. And then when we left the office, we, we made a deal with ABC Studios, and uh, I was there for about seven years. But early, early on, we, uh, we signed on to be the showrunners of a show called Trophy Wife, which had an amazing cast. It was Mullen Ackerman and Bradley Whitford and Marsha Gay Harden and uh, Michaela Watkins, Natalie Morales. And um, I said to my agent, you know, I've never showrun before. You know, everyone keeps talking to us like we're in charge. Like, where's Greg Daniels? Like, he's... He's an adult. We're not, we're not adults. And the agent said, no one's asking us. Just act as if. And that was the advice I got. And I, I remember where I was. And so we did. And so we just got on the network calls. And when HR things came up or when there was a promo debate or we needed more money in the budget, we just, we just did it. And we didn't, you know, we had learned quite a bit. We knew how to run a set. We knew how to talk to actors. We knew how to talk to directors. All of that we had learned from the office. But I didn't know what a budget really meant. I didn't know what was an appropriate ask and I didn't know what an inappropriate ask was. And you, you kind of learn as you go. And hopefully you surround yourself with mentors and people that can kind of guide you a little bit. And I, 
I really do try now that I'm in, I'm in a position where I'm a little bit more established, where I'm able to do that for my writers. Um, but it's, it's very scary. And I think sometimes you have to take a little bit of a leap. And then in short succession, we had a show ordered at HBO called Hello Ladies that we did with Stephen Merchant. And Stephen had run the office with Ricky Gervais. Uh, we'd never done a show in the States. And so now the three of us were now show running. I was, I was show running two shows now. I, I didn't know how to do one. And now I was show running two. And you just figure it out. And you, you know, we, we hired really well. And um, we had a great support system from our studio and great support from our, our other producers on the projects. And with every show, I just learn more and more. And I also, the more I've done it, I, I, know, what I'm, I know what my strengths are and I know where I won't be additive. And I also know where I'm needed. And so much of show running is managing your own time and managing other people's time. And that's something that I think I'm very skilled at and that uh, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't waste a lot of my own time and I don't waste a lot of other people's time. And if I know that a department is, is singing and that they're doing a great job, I don't feel the need to you know, kind of stick my beak in so that I can kind of put my, my stamp on it. That's not, that's not my approach at all. I, I, I try to hire really well and then trust the people I've hired. It sounds like back then you were maybe putting out individual fires as they came up. What's the, what's the advice you pass along or some of the advice you pass along to writers who want to be showrunners today? Is there any like commonality? I think humility is incredibly important. I've seen so many first time showrunners that, uh, that I've said to them personally, like, Hey, we should, you know, we, you should kind of take a season and be a, uh, and, you know, and, and, and kind of learn a little bit. I know it's your show, but somebody else should really come in and just, you, you should learn a little bit. And they're like, I know what this is. I know the tone that I want, whatever. And I've seen a lot of shows, you know, go half a season, go full season and, and have a lot of the problems where you just need someone with experience. And so I think so many people, you know, the goal is to become a director. The goal is to become a showrunner. And the way that things happen with shows happening so fast these days, you know, I spent five years working under Greg Daniels who had, had created, I don't know, three shows by the time I worked for him, who is one of the most accomplished showrunners in the history of television. And like I said, that was my grad school. Now writers, you know, writers can come out of film school with an interesting short film, and maybe not so much right now, but certainly five years ago, someone could say, we're ordering you to series and here's $3 million an episode. And the person has no idea what they're doing. They've never worked with a crew bigger than 10 and all of a sudden now they have 250 people that they're, you know, that are looking to them for all the answers. And I think that's really challenging. And, and again, I think that uh, time management is just, you can't be in everywhere at the same place at the same time. And so, so much of it is finding lieutenants and finding places where you can establish what you're looking for and tonally what you're going for. But if you can be in a situation where you're in one out of every four meetings with props, let's say, because you know that the props department is talking to your producer and that they have a great system and that the producer's only coming to you, they know exactly what you want and they know they're coming to you with five questions rather than the four hours worth of meetings that would, that would have taken. That's a way where you can save time and you can be in the writer's room more. Being in the writer's room is the most important part because no one else, no one else can write the show. Every other department can do their job without you. You're only supporting them. And by the way, sometimes people go in the wrong direction Sometimes you have a great idea and it's very props focused or very design focused and, and you need, you need uh, a way of getting yourself in there. Um, but when people are working and doing their jobs right, uh, you, don't need to, you don't need to sign off on the paint color of every single set 
if your if your writer's room is three scripts behind. That's my opinion. I talked to the creators of Abbott Elementary, and they said, you're a writer, and all of a sudden you're a writer who also runs a TJ Maxx. It was kind of how they, it's like a very odd thing. Uh, one more question before the newest show. So the show Jury Duty, is that something where you're just looking for method actors and preparing them? Like how much of that is scripted? How does that kind of start to work, um, something like that? You know, with Jury Duty, it reminded me a lot of kind of early office in, in that every, every piece of casting with the exception of James Marsden was really a discovery. So uh, Susie Ferris, who was our casting director, just did this incredible job of finding these amazing improv actors that were, could, you know, you're, that, that show's evolving on the fly. Uh, Gene and I wrote the pilot script for the show that ultimately got the show greenlit. And then a writer's room spent weeks and weeks kind of going through what the, um, what the season would look like, how that case evolves. And we, you know, we'd given them some ideas in terms of, uh, you know, we want to do a field trip episode and, and all, all of these different, all of these different ideas. And, you know, you basically would write like a seven page, you know, kind of almost outline for it that, that kind of hit all the key plot points so that you knew, you know, you, the director knew to pull James Marsden aside and said, hey, we need to get him to go into that room. Can you get him into that room? And then James would say, hey, like, I forgot my thing. Can you help me get it? Can you help me carry that thing? And now all of a sudden he's in the room for the next scene. Or we need two people to start debating something, but we need to get Ronald involved in it. And so much of it was pulling people into talking heads, giving them the notes so that they could then uh, kind of craft the story on the fly. But pulling off a show like Jury Duty, I mean, it's unlike any, you know, what excites me about my career is I'm kind of genre agnostic and I love to toggle between all of these different, um, these different tones and, and I gravitate towards ideas and, and characters more than like, oh, I, you know, I only write horror, so that's what you expect from me, so that's what I'm going to do. And Jury Duty was just an um, amazing challenge and with all of these things, it only works when you, when you kind of have the people around you that are so talented and so Jury Duty is, you know, it's a collaboration of like seven producers and the most amazing crew and Susie Ferris casting the shit mm. out of it. And, you know, there are so many different ways that that show could have gone wrong. And thankfully, uh, you know, we, we tried to prepare as best we could and just had these amazing actors that were just kind of carrying it, you know, uh, throughout. So it's kind of taking maybe a verge from more of the comedy you're known for, as you said, your, your interest in character. What led to Lessons in Chemistry? What kind of enticed you about this story? So Lessons in Chemistry... My wife read it initially, and she's a journalist and uh, has impeccable taste and whatever she says, I do. Um, and she read it and said, this is a TV series. And I immediately started reading it, and we looked it up at Apple. Apple had you know, optioned the rights to it, and Brie Larson was attached already. And I called Apple. I cold called Apple. I mean, I have a deal there, but you know, they, weren't, they weren't looking for anyone as far as I knew. And, you know, I think because of the subject matter, I don't know that they were looking for me specifically. And I just called my executive and I said, I'm sure you guys are down the road, but for whatever it's worth, I'm obsessed with this book. I would do anything to be a part of it. If there's ever a need, just think of me. And they were looking for a writer at the time. They were meeting with writers. And within a few days, I, I pitched them a little bit of what I was thinking about tonally. And then I got on a Zoom with Brie Larson and Brie and I immediately hit it off and she is whip smart and charming and funny. And 
we just spoke the same language when talking about the show and also our approach to kind of running a show. And I think a day later I got hired and we were just off to the races. Did you feel like any doubt being known more for comedy or is it like, how did you kind of feel about, you know, I guess applying for the job or reaching out? Like once you actually started to have some of the conversations, did it feel real right away or were you kind of having to jump through some hoops a little bit? Well, you know, the funny thing, it's, it goes back to what I said my agent told me, which was like, no one's, no one, you know, like fake it till you make it a little bit. And no one, no one was asking the question. Everyone assumed that I did it because I, that I could show run because I was titled, my title was showrunner and I was on calls and people were looking to me for answers and I answered them. So therefore I was the showrunner. And so, you know, Gene and I directed a movie called Good Boys uh, in 2018 or 2019. I'm terrible with dates, but somewhere around then. And in the midst of that, I sold a show to Apple called Little America, which was this immigrant anthology series. And Little America was the beginning of kind of an, a little bit of an evolution in my career where I was telling stories that weren't uh, solely comedy, uh, you know, comedy stories. Even though Little America was a half hour, it was much more dramatic. And so I did Little America. I had a great experience with Apple and, and, and ended up making a deal there. And then followed up Little America with We Crashed, which was based on a podcast by Wondery. Um, that initially I thought maybe could be a half hour, but as I delved into it, really felt like it should be a, an hour and partnered up with one of my best friends, Drew Cravello, um, and we and we wrote it. And all of a sudden I had Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway, and I was the co-showrunner of an hour-long limited series with two Oscar winners. And I didn't know what I was doing. I knew I knew a little bit of what I was doing, but I, I had never written an hour-long uh, series before. I had written some specs before, and I loved, I loved those types of shows, but nobody said, well, hold on, why is the comedy guy doing We Crashed? And I think that Little America was a little bit of that bridge. So by the time that uh, Lessons in Chemistry came along, I was having the opposite experience where sometimes I would come into Apple or other places and say, hey, I have an idea for a comedy. And they'd be like, well, hold on one second. We really, you're, you're the guy who does limited series, you know, with, uh, with Brie Larson or, you know, Jared Leto or Anne Hathaway. And so you're... There's a, you have an ability, you can really kind of create your own, uh, you can change the course of your career with material. And I think that's what's so exciting about being a writer. And by the way, if someone only wants to write comedies for the rest of their career, if that's what they want to do, I think that's amazing. I think a lot of times, you know, people mid-career, if you look at Adam McKay, Adam McKay was, you know, nobody was bigger than him in, in comedy. And then in the last few years with the big short and 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 um, and the uh, the Cheney one and, you know, all, all of his things, I mean, he does comedy, but, it, it, you know, he went, he's gone in a very different direction in the succession pilot. He's gone in a very different direction than when you think of Step Brothers or, um, yeah. or some of his earlier work. If you're kind of putting your resume aside when you're applying to some of these, has anything changed about the industry? I've heard a lot of people say that, like, treatments are far more important than they used to be as opposed to, like, a, a spec or a pilot episode, at least to kind of get the, the first few steps. Any, any thoughts on that or ways things have changed in the last 10 years or so? Oh, interesting. I, I haven't had experience with that. I mean, I think that the... What's happened in the last few years, I think, with the kind of the growth and the explosion in streaming is, and, and particularly when you have people like Brie Larson or Jared Leto or Anne Hathaway or, you know, countless other uh, movie stars that are doing TV, the pilot system has gone away. And so it used to be that you would, you know, you'd write up, you'd write a script, the studio or the network, the network ultimately would decide if they're going to make it. And then the, the pilot was the proof of concept. And then they would decide once they made it, 
they're, you know, they take three months and you're editing it and then they ultimately decide if they're gonna go forward or not. And then you can be in a writer's room and then you do the writing and then after that you shoot it and then the show could last for three episodes or it could last for 22. That was the network model. But now with all these big stars attached, it's changed completely. Like you're not getting Brie Larson to shoot a pilot in April, edit it through the summer and then have Apple decide in September, oh Brie, come back, we're gonna shoot the final seven episodes of your show. So that's just not, the, it's not the system. And, 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 you know, part of that is the demand from, uh, from you know, the, the demand that all the networks have for content. And then also Brie Larson's schedule is, is planned out for the next two years. You don't get, you don't get two bites at Brie for, you know, one for this length of time, and this one, you might be waiting a year or two for that. And then, you know, what's the point of doing the project in the first place? You're going to have something else that's going to come out that's going to feel similar. So what's happened is you have, uh, you write the pilot and then maybe, you know, there were all these mini rooms, which was part of the reason, you know, it was one of the issues during the strike. And the, the mini room was in some ways replacing part of the pilot process where the networks were hedging and trying to see, well, okay, we're very compelled by this pilot story, but what do we have coming? What, you know, what does the season feel like? And the mini rooms, I understand, I understand where the abuses were happening but also you were able to kind of have a little bit of a room to kind of help you create what it looked like. Um, another, another version of it, uh, which happened to us on We Crashed, is we wrote the pilot and then in lieu of writing a, you know, a second uh, uh, episode, we, we wrote a 30-page Bible that really kind of went through, Drew and I created it and really went through, you know, scene, not scene by scene, but episode by episode, what the show was going to feel feel like from a shape perspective and a structure, structural perspective, and then really went into detail on every one of those characters so that Apple could look at that and say, oh wow, these guys know what they're doing. These guys really have a, a, a firm grasp on the material because they're about to spend millions and millions of dollars to, to create the show. And that's where, that's the, that's the fear. It used, to, it used to be that you spend millions of dollars on a pilot and you would shoot I don't know, you'd shoot 10 pilots or 15 pilots to air three of them to series. And now you're reading, you're reading a 60 page script and saying, oh, you know what? I'm gonna invest you know, 50 million or $100 million into your show. It's, it's quite scary. I understand it. I understand it from both the writer side and the studio network side. We're almost out of time. Uh, just last question. You've given a lot of great advice already. Some of it's around original voice, uh, being really prepared with a, a pitch or a spec script. Any other advice or you might pass along for like someone in the position that you might be hiring? Uh, what are you looking for? What can they do to get noticed maybe? I mean, I, what I would say is, you know, I, when, when we're in the middle of staffing, you know, we get giant stacks of scripts and I have people that are kind of vetting it for me so that I'm not reading giant stacks of scripts and I can do, uh, I can do some of my other responsibilities. But you know, when scripts finally come across my desk, uh, the people on my team know the things that I respond to. And, and often I don't have time to read you know, a 60 page script. I, I, and, but I, I know within five, maybe seven pages uh, what I'm looking for. And, and the things I'm looking for are specificity, texture, surprise, um, moves that I was not expecting, uh, worlds that feel really lived in. And, you know, if you read, if you, if you read as much as I do, and, 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 and again, I have the benefit of, you know, experience now. There was a writer that, uh, that Drew and I hired on, uh, on We Crashed. I think I read four, Drew said, get to page four and you're going to want to hire him. 
And I read it and I was like, wow, this guy's a great writer. And I got to page four and there was a scene and I was like, wow, that was wild. And I was like, all right, this guy just moved to the top of the list. And I maybe out of curiosity, maybe I read another 10 pages, but I didn't need to. I knew exactly what I had. And when you read something and you lean forward and it's exciting and it feels dynamic, it's the same thing as when you watch a movie or you have a TV show. So much of what you watch, you kind of are like, yeah, that was pretty good. And you're on your phone and then you watch Breaking Bad and you can't, you're glued to the screen. And, and, and those experiences where you watch something or read something, Lessons in Chemistry was like this. I couldn't, I couldn't fathom putting it down. My entire schedule for a few days was built around finishing this book. And when you, when you read something like that or you, uh, or you watch something like that, it just feels urgent. And you know, sometimes I watch a short film and I'm like, oh my God, I need to, I need to meet with this person. I need to, I need to develop with them. And so that, that to me, you know, it's, it's, it's specificity really more than anything. It's like, man, you just put me into a whole new world. And maybe I thought I knew what this world was, but like whether, it, whether that's your experience or you were able to capture an experience of somebody else, I'm, I'm all in. And that, that, that's what I'm really looking for. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. If it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.